generation dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. Welcome to Color Correction, a GCC podcast about race and religion from the perspective of an Asian guy, a black girl, and a white guy too. I'm Andrew, Asian, he, him pronouns. And I'm Bethany, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a black woman. I'm Chris, I'm a white man, I use he, him pronouns. So we like to start out the episode by talking about things that we want to correct or things that we wish we had brought up in the previous episode. I guess what I really wanted to correct or bring up in the previous episode is that I haven't I, I acknowledge that I, out of the three of us I'm the only one who has actually listened to the episode because it's I'm in the process of editing it but I feel like I sound like a dick <laughs> <laughs> um, and I thought it was interesting because I really enjoyed that episode like I think it's going to be a really good episode and I think the reason it was so interesting is that you and I Bethany were having a genuine disagreement about celebrities right and, and it got cancel a little culture bit, and yeah. like how we consume celebrities. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to say also that like we're all really good friends and we can disagree with each other. And it might sound like Andrew's being a dick or I might be irritated or Chris might be irritated, mm-hmm. but we're good with each other. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that's how we work stuff out. And I think that's also how we work stuff out as a church. I have rarely had a like a transformative experience in conflict where the middle part wasn't super dreadful, annoying, uncomfortable, and hard. Like, that's part of the process. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cool. All right. So we're also going to transition into our speak up section. Um, where we hear back from our listeners about what they're thinking about past episodes or um, just asking questions about past episodes. So the first one that I'm going to read is from a listener that's connected to our congregation in New Jersey. Um, And he writes, Dear friends, I just loved the the vulnerability you brought to your recent episode. You described the holiness of your work in the participatory defense hubs as having something to do with the vulnerability of it. And then you brought that in full force to this episode. I felt it with you. The practical Jesus work is inseparable from our relationships with God. I 100% agree. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commands. I think the reciprocal language of that chapter, coupled with my own experiential confirmation of this truth, make me confident enough to say that the inverse is also true. If you obey my commands, you will love me. Jesus's idea for intimacy with him is in our obedience and our taking up of his project of liberation in Luke 4. And it is clear that the gospel writers and Paul agree that the pinnacle of Jesus's intimacy with the father was his obedience, even obedience unto death. You inspire me to keep imagining and keep persevering in the hard but regularly rewarding work that we, the body of Christ, have been given to do. I'm glad to be partners with you. Keep bringing that Jesus fire and keep seeing it in your work. Mm. So thanks, listener, for that compliment. Yeah, thank you. And then another listener wrote this to us a few weeks ago, actually about a month ago now. And I wanted to get to this because it had to do with a past episode in which I called the police on a person that was obviously having a mental health crisis. Um, And how I talked about how I did that because I couldn't quickly think of another resource. So um, this listener from our Frankfurt Avenue congregation writes, hey, friends. Something happened to me the other day that reminded me of the episode about Bethany's backpack getting stolen. The other day, I was driving down Germantown Ave and saw a man violently screaming at a woman. He had a bicycle and kept picking it up and throwing it towards her, not directly at her, but kind of around her. She was pushing a stroller and looking straight ahead, seemingly trying not to make eye contact with the guy. I turned around, parked my car, and caught up with the two. I asked if everything was okay, and the woman didn't look at me, while the man said, what do you mean is everything okay? I responded that I saw some yelling and was concerned. He said, why don't you call the cops if you think something is wrong, white lady? It's definitely worth mentioning that this was a black couple, and I'm a white woman. I would assume that's why he called her white lady. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, otherwise that'd be very strange. (laughs) (laughs) Just throwing white lady as as an insult to anybody. 
Uh, but that could work, actually. I think there's a lot of connotation behind uh, that. Yeah, now that, now that we point that out. <laughs> so anyways, let me keep reading. I ended up just walking away, but felt very unbalanced and confused on how to handle that. Thoughts, resources to call. I didn't think the cops were the right way to go or if there was anything I could do, but I was concerned for her safety. I talked to a friend after who said that people who are going to leave domestic violence situations probably wouldn't do it at a time like that. So I should so I shouldn't be too hard on myself. But that feels incomplete. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Mm. So I actually don't have an answer to this yeah, question I because I find domestic violence to be really a really, really difficult space to navigate yeah. because sometimes um, the other part of the, the the person that's being harmed may turn on you. Sometimes you don't know if you like try to rescue that person in the moment. If they go home, what they'll go home to. Domestic violence is just like a really difficult thing to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um and in my work with the Philadelphia Community Bell Fund, we're also trying to work out how to navigate domestic violence cases when um, somebody submits like a request to be bailed out and they're accused of domestic violence. It's like, how do we keep the person that you're accused of harming safe? And how do we keep you safe mm-hmm. because the system of mass incarceration is harming you? Without- and what I think it looks like is transformative justice work in which the person that's accused of causing harm is supported by people that will hold them accountable to a process of working through the harm that they've caused. And the person that has been harmed has a group and a team together um, that will support them and hold them accountable and make requests for um, how the person that's accused of causing harm can work towards healing with Mm -hmm. them. So that's a, but I don't know who's doing that work in um, Philly. I yeah. know Miriam Kaba um, is doing it in New York, and I think there are people in Philly who are who are wanting to create safety pods or transformative justice groups like that in Philly. But I don't know who they are right now. So yeah. if you're out there and you're doing that work, hit me up, cousin. because yeah. I want to join. And also, like we would love to tell people about what you're doing. Right. Like, I would love to be a sounding board for that kind of work. Right. I'm glad that the listener, that the person who wrote in acknowledged the kind of complicated racial dynamics of that. Mm-hmm. Right. And also the fact that, like, calling the police, it's shitty that the police make situations worse. Right. Yeah. You know? Right. Leaving her with no recourse. I mean, that's not, that's not her fault, and there's nothing she can do about it. And some of the things that we're talking about now are creating systemic change or creating mechanisms that we can rely on right. outside just, of the police yeah that just don't exist right now so like if i were in that situation i don't know what i would do either yeah i probably wouldn't have even approached them mm. um but i don't know why that's maybe something i should think more about because i i was thinking I, I i know that like if the if the objective you have of like changing the person's situation right there in that moment, if that's what it was, like yeah, that that's pretty far fetched. But I just like, I wonder how important that was for the for that woman's trajectory, for that man's trajectory, just to have someone be a public witness to the situation and give them a chance each to think about what was going on. Mm-hmm. Mm. It slows the situation down when a third party gets involved. Yeah. So that action. Actually, I shouldn't just say I probably wouldn't have done that in the transformative justice uh, like courses that I've taken, um, specifically Marion Cabas from New York. She says, just like insert yourself. Mm-hmm. It slows the situation down. Mm-hmm. If you hear your neighbors arguing upstairs, just knock on the door and you can figure out what you're going to say when they open it. But it slows the situation down yeah. and it removes the person from it. Mm-hmm. Their focus shifts and it usually slows that. It usually makes them calm down mm-hmm. more than you would like. I would be afraid that they would start screaming more or be like, bitch, you see you got other bitches involved or something. You know what I mean? Like I would make it worse. Yeah. But like when they that door research. closes again and, they, and like you're gone, right? Right. right. Yep. Like that's mm-hmm. always my fear. But they say that that actually doesn't happen. Mm. That it usually causes it to start to like dissipate De-escalate. because oh, they know yeah, yeah. they know people are paying attention. Yeah. Mm. So maybe I should simmer down a little bit because somebody's noticing me. Mm-hmm. But well, my instinct is the opposite. I yeah. mean, that's definitely my instinct too. But you're, you're having said that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So hopefully for that for that situation, even though like. It didn't end the way you would have hoped. Like, 
It slowed things down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she did the right thing. Yeah. So what we want to talk about today is we wanted to talk about cultural appropriation, right? Yeah. yeah. So feel, we've been yeah. talking about ethical like consumerism for a couple of weeks now. Mm-hmm. We took a break when we were in San Jose just to like gush about participatory defense. Mm-hmm. But we've been talking about how we ethically consume things and interact with cultures and people for about a month now. Yeah. If y'all haven't noticed. Yeah. One of the ways that we tried to personalize this discussion right before we came here Mm -hmm. (laughs) was by eating at Chew Noodle Bar down the street. Which, you know, you have to understand for for Andrew as the editor, all those mouth noises, knowing that going in, like, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Yeah. And even going to that, to to the noodle bar, uh, my wife is... uh, saw the picture that I took of the ramen and now is berating me on text message. Her mm. latest message is, how could you? <laughs> <laughs> so there, like, within this episode is some disappointment. Yeah. So we should probably explain what Chew Noodle Bar is. Yes. Uh, yeah, you did some research on Chew Noodle I, Bar. I, I did a little it. bit. Um, so the place we went is a noodle bar. Um, Asian-inspired with, like, some Jewish influences. The... Um, it's co-owned by two white guys, Asian-themed restaurant. And, act, and it's actually one of several of their ventures that has an Asian theme. They also have a dim sum restaurant. The, the atmosphere of the, the place we went today, Chu, um, has a lot of like overt Asian expressions, um, like um, a giant Japanese mural. There's wallpapering, and when you look at the wallpaper, it's actually like the labels off of packaging with like from. Is like, it Korean packaging? I think it's just random. I think it's just yeah, Asian food um, packaging. So it's basically just two white guys making money off of Asian culture. There we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me being in there. Yeah, you're Asian, so that really hits home. It was it was very weird. Yeah, say something about that. Um. <laughs> It, was the racism delicious? Um, I'm I, I'm not gonna say anything about the food, <laughs> but like, it, it feels strange to have like signifiers of my of like culture that feels familiar or homey to me to be taken by I mean somebody who's not a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's the description from their, the about page of their South Philly restaurant, Bang Bang Dim Sum. What do we, two dudes from Philly, know about authentic Asian cuisine? Nothing. <laughs> Lucky for us, that's not what Chew Noodle Bar, Chew Fish Town, Bing Bing, and Nu Nu are all about. We cook what we like to eat. It's personal no matter what we put in front of you. Our food is often informed by tradition, but it's never defined by it. All we require of you is a willing mind and a willing stomach. We might not be authentic, in quotes, but we do keep it real. Ben and Sean. That's a very white guy thing to say. I, it is, and it's, and it's also that's not in, like it's not entirely truthful. It's not like if you're if all you're interested in is like making food that you like, then why are you t- using all these like Asian right. like signify? Like why are you using why why is your mural a Japanese graphic design thing? Right. Like at Bing Bing Dim Sum, why are you using all this like random dishware that I would find at my grandma's house? Right. And right. calling it Bing Bing. Yeah. And what, like, what's up with the names of your restaurants? Bing Bing Dim Sum, Chew Noodle Bar. Chew why don't C-H-E-U. you just call it shit you like? Yeah. Why not just call it Ben and Sean's? Yeah. yeah. Or whatever, you know? Yeah. You are appropriating and taking traditional aspects. Right. In order to make money. And right. it feels icky. Admitting that you don't know anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, How white can you get to be like, I don't know shit about this, but I'm going to make a whole lot of money off of it. Fuck it. That's about us. Yeah. Like, you, just, you, you keep an open mind. But something that if feels... If you have a problem, it's your problem. Right. Because we were <laughs> honest about it. We keep it real, just like Donald Trump keeps it real. <laughs> but anyways, something that feels really important to me was how busy that restaurant was right, yeah. and how much money it was making in the midst of the xenophobia that's coming up um, mm-hmm. because of the coronavirus. And Whoa. didn't you tell me that sales in Chinatown have plummeted like 40%? Yes. Yeah. But these white guys don't have to worry about that. Right. They don't have to worry about the effects of xenophobia because people feel safe getting their mm-hmm. bing bing dim sum or whatever noodles right. from their restaurant that's run by white guys. Yeah, but an authentic restaurant in Chinatown is suffering right now. Right. And we should say that the, um, the restaurant is not in Chinatown. So it's in a different neighborhood. Right. Altogether. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah. Where it can really escape the effects of xenophobia and racism. Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't even think about that. For the second time in the history, my short history of being here, um, our mayor has visited Chinatown publicly during um, during one of these yeah. flu epidemics whose epicenter is in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time was Mayor Street. Okay. Um, both of them like made these really public gestures to tell people... That it's safe to go. It's eat in safe Chinatown. to go eat in Chinatown. Yeah. Well, while we're on this subject, um, I was on the subway, and there was a lady um, that was covering her. Well, there was an Asian lady uh, who was wearing a mask on the scarf. Mm-hmm. And nobody was sitting next to her, so I was like, "Open seat. I'll sit next to her." But then I like it was cold, so I started sneezing, and she looked over at me like, "Motherfucker!" Which <laughs> <laughs> is trying to make my life difficult. And I was like. And you had to be Asian too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I, like I, you know better than this yeah, was probably like she what was she looking was thinking. Over at me and I, like we were like, reading each other's minds. Like really? <laughs> and you're like, oh damn, sorry, sorry, lady. I know it's hard for us right now. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So let's talk about what cultural appropriation is. We kind of just described it in reading those descriptions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew, how would you define cultural appropriation? Um, Cultural appropriation is when a member of the dominant culture appropriates or takes something that belongs to a minority culture. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think I want to interrogate that a little bit because I want everyone to be on board with what we're going to talk about. Should we keep it contextualized at you and and bust that open a little bit? Uh, Right. So in the example of, of Chew Noodle Bar, you've got members of the dominant culture two white guys who are taking elements of a minority culture, Asian food. And and Pan-Asian. It's not really nebulous. Yeah, just random Asian stuff from all over and putting it on one menu mm-hmm. and just kind of, and getting Asian uh, artistic elements yeah. and using, putting that all over your restaurant. And I don't know if this is part of most formal definitions, but I think for profit, like monetary profit or, or for um, like social advantage, mm-hmm. you know, like when, when somebody like dresses as, as a Native American for Halloween, they're not making any money off of it. Right. Uh, but they are doing it for social advantage. Yeah. For, Where, to uh, have the best yeah, social outfit. Currency, right? Whereas yeah. as, as Bethany has pointed out, even in, even as Chinatown suffers um, from people not coming, from xenophobia, from the coronavirus. These this this place run by white people in a in a white neighborhood mm-hmm. is safe. See those, even though it's like Asian inspired, like mm-hmm. it, it can escape some of the consequences of actually being Asian and serving Asian food in an Asian neighborhood. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The advantages of of whiteness get applied to that thing without yeah. any of the disadvantages. And you, we see that over and over again in culture. Maybe this is when I'll bring this up. But, like, best-selling rapper of all time is Eminem. Right. It's more palatable when it's delivered by a white person. Right, yes. Right. Um, Elvis Presley. Right, Elvis Presley. Prime example of it. Uh, well, let's talk about more examples of cultural appropriation outside of mm-hmm. Chew Noodle Bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I see cultural appropriation specifically in regards to black hairstyles. Um, and even black style in general, like big hoop earrings, big gold hoop earrings. Um, but I think hairstyles bother me the most. Mm. Um, so a couple of years ago, the Kardashians started wearing their hair in two um, plaited braids back and called it boxer braids. Mm. I don't know why they decided to start calling them boxer braids, I guess because female boxers wear their hair in two braids but they were cornrows right mm-hmm. and they were the cornrows that i've been wearing since right. i was a little kid um the two little cornrows that your mom puts in your hair after she washes it because she ain't got time to press it out mm-hmm. so the nerve of the kardashians to take that style on and name it something else and give no credit to all the black women for for years who have mastered the art of mm. braiding yeah. Right. Like that's a very ancient African thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's such a traditional style um, that black girls own from like the time we're born. I see little little black babies with two braids in their hair. Right. Um, and I think what really bothers me about white women taking braids and wearing it is when it's when a white woman executes a braiding style it's deemed as trendy and chic, but when a black woman does it, it's too black and it's too aggressive. And why, why is she doing that? Right. We're totally still not. still in an atmosphere in this country where if black women go into a professional setting 
with their natural hair, there's a chance, a very good chance, that they'll be considered unprofessional yep. just for wearing their hair as it naturally is. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you felt something personally about that when that fashion was going on, right? Yeah, I felt personally slighted, specifically because I've had situations in my workplace where I suffered like severe repercussions because I had a braided hairstyle. Right. Mm So I um, typically wore my hair at the time. I typically wore my hair in a really short pixie haircut. Um, This happened between me and a manager, I think, in 2016. Um, And I decided to grow my perm out, which is, you know, a style Uh, that a lot of black women were doing. It's less popular now where you would chemically straighten your hair. So I would chemically straighten my hair um, and then get it cut short into a pixie. Um, But I decided to go natural. And in my going natural process to grow my perm out, um, I got a braided style. I had really long um, individual braids, Mm. not boxer braids or Mm. plaits. Um, and my manager, my white male manager at the time, I could see him staring at me like he wanted to say something. <laughs> um, and finally, I turned around and was just like, what's up? Like, how you doing? And this kind of goes into the consumerism of white people and this yeah. assumption that they can take things uh-huh. or this assumption that they have rights to our bodies and mm-hmm. asking about our bodies. He went into all these invasive questions. Is that really your hair? Mm-hmm. Um, how long did that take? And then he turned to my white coworker and said, oh, so-and-so, uh-huh. um, can you get your hair to look like that? And it was so insulting. It made me feel like he was making fun of me. Mm-hmm. And I proceeded to call him a fucking racist um, oh, as dang. he walked away. Uh-huh. And then like two weeks later, I get written up for some shit. Uh-huh. And it was obvious. To, it was, to me, it was obvious that I got written up for something because he probably heard me call him a fucking racist uh-huh. on the floor. Yeah. Um, but that's what it was. Like, yeah. you don't have the right to ask me if this is my hair. And, bro, you know this ain't my hair. I had a short pixie haircut. My hair was almost as short as your hair right. two weeks ago, cousin. You know this ain't my fucking hair. Like, yeah. why do you think you have the right to ask me these invasive questions? Right, right. You wouldn't ask a woman who is a white woman who was suffering from cancer if right. a wig was her hair. You yeah. know it's not her hair. Right, exactly. You, had the, you would have the humanity to understand that about her, but you don't have that for me. Right. right. And the the fact that, going back to the idea of cultural appropriation, feels like a real justice. It feels it personally like an injustice. Yeah. Because a white person can get away with this. Right. And, and their humanity is seen, right? right? Like, oh, you are a person that wants to be trendy and has a chic style. I understand understand that this is stylish and chic Uh whereas my humanity isn't fully seen in the styling of my hair Mm -hmm. and i'm looked at as more you already think of me as aggressive or violent and then having this hairstyle that is traditionally black reinforces that yeah Mm -hmm. totally and you as a white person are like super innovative for taking those styles and making it so much more palatable right. yeah, just like them chew noodles roll, don't you know right yeah. uh-huh. right i'm still processing this chew noodle bar experience yeah no, i don't no, know no. i don't know how many like I, I don't know this is becoming like I don't, I don't want this show to become like racial jackass where like we expose ourselves to racism <laughs> for the sake of this podcast <laughs> and like see how its effect on us because like i'm sitting here thinking about like your experience of like what a white person can get away with and i'm thinking about one of my favorite restaurants in chinatown non-so hand-drawn noodles this place used to be very janky. It used to be random Asian decor on the wall. I think like an air conditioner sticking out. Just like dudes sitting around in business suits eating noodles. It felt like I was back in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I'm going to show you guys a picture of what they did when they renovated. Okay. Okay. Because I think I've... I've been there, but not for a while. This is what it looks Holy like shit. now. It looks really nice. It looks really nice. Also, look at that picture. It's got pictures of food on the wall. And look who's in the picture. It's all white people. It's, and all it's got a bunch white of white guys. people. First of all, I still highly recommend this restaurant. Their noodles are just as good. But I mean, I'm thinking about the fact that like this authentic Asian place with amazing hand-drawn noodles knew what it had to do to survive exactly and it, and like, it had to adapt it, it had to adapt it and remade it yeah it, it made itself whiter in order to be ad- more palatable be more palatable meanwhile chew noodle bar in fishtown 
gets to be kind of Asian, be be weirdly Asian and Oriental, and like right. be tacky AF. It's it feels really unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it is an injustice. It's an injustice that when I um, embrace my culture, I'm rejected by the dominant culture. Right. But when the dominant culture wants to steal my culture, they get accolades and praise for it. And yeah. will probably take offense at you calling it a theft. Yeah. Like they want to talk about it as an embrace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting yeah. thing to point out because when is it embracing and appreciating mm-hmm. culture and when is it exactly. appropriating yeah. and stealing? Let's move into that because yeah. that's a great subject. One of the things that certain people like to throw around is the idea that oh, all cultures are constantly appropriating from each other and it's just cultural mixing and that's good and fine. Mm -hmm. But what that ignores is the fact that there is a dominant culture and Mm -hmm. there are minority cultures. There's a power difference. Yes. uh, That exists. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a reason that Chew Noodle Bar can do something that that Nunso can't do. Like, there's a reason... Not without a rebuild. right? Right, yeah. I mean, there's a reason that, like, white people can get away with certain hair. I think when we say hair, I want to, like, point out black hair. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a braiding style, braiding feels really African. Or even when women dress up for the 70s and throw on, like, an Afro wig. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. that wasn't your style in the 70s. Your style was the Farrah Fawcett. So go ahead and flip that hair and and get it popping that way. Throwing on an Afro wig feels so culturally inappropriate it's bigoted is what it is stupid that yeah. wasn't your style don't throw on an afro wig for a costume do people do that somebody won first place at my job where i got lambasted and asked a whole bunch of questions because i had braids uh-huh. the very next year a white woman dressed like the 70s and had an afro wig and won first place for the halloween costume yeah. wow I was pissed. That is amazing. The, what a, that that story. I can't believe you didn't bring that up earlier because that directly relates to what we're talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like that. that is, I forgot about it until just now. Yeah. That's a theft. I mean, well, let's talk. About, let me ask you this specifically. Like, how did, how did it? I've been lucky enough so that I have never had to deal directly with somebody using my culture as a costume, mm-hmm. which is like what people talk. Uh, what a, a lot of times, what people automatically think about when they think cultural appropriation. Because if there's anything that's fucked up, it's that. Oh, it's Halloween. Right. It's like, yes. Hall- Halloween brings out the worst. People- Halloween costumes are like the N word of racism. You know how right. white people act like it's not racist, uh, or right. like there's levels of racism. Like the N word is the worst. Right. Well, I feel she, like she Halloween put on an costumes. Afro, but she didn't paint her face. Right. So it's okay. Right. 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 That's how it is. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, like it's low on the racist. Like you have somebody asking if my hair is a wig, and then you have somebody asking if, uh, or somebody calling me the n word, right? Uh-huh. Like there's right. those separations that right. white people have, and they feel good about asking if my hair is a wig, but they uh-huh. know the n word is uh-huh. wrong. Right. Like that's what I feel like it is. <laughs> so I feel like costumes are like that n word level. Like uh-huh. we know we shouldn't do this, right? Mm-hmm. But just throwing on like an afro wig mm-hmm. like we shouldn't wear like a geisha costume i think more white people understand that now or we shouldn't just throw on a native american costume like we know that's wrong mm-hmm. um there's actually a memo at my job now about appropriating cultures okay. in the halloween costumes, in halloween costumes. yeah because somebody one of my friends like went in about it one year for halloween mm-hmm. but i think just throwing on an afro wig Seems like it falls lower on that racism spectrum. Yeah, Yeah, hierarchy. I mean, what was your immediate reaction to the person who had the afro? I was just like, okay, whatever. Uh And then when she won first place, I was pissed. Yeah. And I said something to my friend about it. And I was like, I just think it's real funny. My my white friend, who is a great ally, she listens to the podcast. She actually said she looked you up and she was like, he's from the Lehigh Valley. We could possibly know each other. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. Um, But she's a great ally in the workplace and when i expressed how pissed i was to her that like last year i was getting asked all these questions about my braids but then the next year a white lady wins first place Mm -hmm. um wearing an afro she actually went to the attorneys and said something to them about it and Mm -hmm. was like this this doesn't feel good Mm -hmm. like 
But I think that's such a and nuance. And now there's a memo. Don't well, I think we're asking don't. that question of appreciation and appropriation again. Yeah, what absolutely. are the hard lines? And I think yeah. we exist in a world of nuance. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people of color understand nuance really well because we understand that we might straighten our hair. We might mm-hmm. like um, work a great job and still get arrested by the police and go to jail for something that we mm-hmm. didn't do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we understand that the world is unjust and unfair, right? right? So we can live in a gray area. I think it's really hard to define appropriation Mm. and appreciation for white people because they live in a world where they experience justice and fairness and things have to be concrete for them to get it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I think I, I yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Let's I mean, let's just run into straight into the gray area because I think it's pretty clear like there's there's stuff that we're saying is not okay. Right. Uh but but there's also stuff that's like when we talk about when we're talking about power dynamics one mm-hmm. of the gray areas is when other POCs appropriate culture from another POC culture Mm -hmm. and is that really appropriation because for me it doesn't necessarily feel like appropriation because there's a so we talked about cultural appropriation having a lot to do with the power dynamic of Mm -hmm. whiteness and when white people take it I don't feel like other POCs have that same power Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like a white person can be racist a person of color can be prejudiced but the difference between racism and prejudice is power Mm. And I kind of feel that way about appropriation. Where it gets ugly is when POCs appropriate another culture in a way that upholds white white supremacy. Interesting. It yeah. greenlights the like greater appropriation. Right. So we talked earlier about the Lizzo example. Do you mm. want to talk a little bit more about that, Andrew? Yeah. So Lizzo did a photo shoot for Rolling Stone magazine. It where... makes sense to talk about who Lizzo is. I think we have in the past, but she's a singer slash rapper right now. Um, a beautiful black artist that is a identifies as a fat woman and is really doing a lot of work to challenge our ideas of beauty mm-hmm. and fatness yeah. and, and that those things are um, not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and she's naked a lot. Right. Because of it. <laughs> yeah. She's naked a lot because of it. Right. And she did a photo shoot for Rolling Stone magazine where, among other outfits, she did, she was wearing what, it, it, kind of like a traditional Cambodian headdress along with a very uh, kind of is, is skimpy version of, I guess, Cambodian inspired clothing. Like, the tricky part of this is like, Lizzo is black. Mm-hmm. What she's doing with her body is very intentional, and she's mm-hmm. making a point for the sake of her art, and it's a right. very interesting point. And that it's fat black bodies are also beautiful. Right, and it's challenging the way that we think about black bodies and also large bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like there are these, uh, there are certain stereotypes or ways of looking at Asian women and Asian clothing that are rooted in kind of this sexualized otherness, this Mm -hmm. kind of sexy Orientalism. Mm -hmm. And to what extent, I guess, is Lizzo using those negative stereotypes in service of, like, the point that she's trying to make? Right. And it gets kind of... It gets kind of sticky there. Right. Like, my response to white supremacy and blackness is upholding white supremacy Mm -hmm. and Asian-ness. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's like a really weird nuance. Like that's a super gray uh-huh. area. Well, and I think it's because like it all depends on who you are, whether or not you even recognize the nuance, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. people are going to get that in certain in certain minority groups. Right. The dominating white culture might just see that as permission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, Lizzo did it. Why can't I? Right. right. Yeah. White people always want, I feel like white people want permission to do things because they're never told no. They don't live in a world where no really exists for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think white people use any opportunity to get permission to do something because mm-hmm. they don't want to have to ask permission. Right. right. And I think that happens with language. I think that happens with cultural appropriation. It's like I have, I live in a world where I have access and power over everything. So what the fuck do you mean I can't take this from this culture? Mm-hmm. Or what the fuck do you mean I can't say 
this word. Like, I think that's one of the biggest battles about cultural Mm -hmm. appropriation is white people facing that they don't have permission to do something in a world where they have access to everything. Yeah. And I think it's it comes from, I think, white people not realizing the power dynamics that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. Like white people can't recognize their own privilege. Mm -hmm. They just assume that everybody is on a level playing field. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if there's a a culture exchange happening over here, why can't I get in on that? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes. I I think that's apt. um, It's like, no, you, there's a, there's a different implication when you do this thing. When a fat black body wears this Cambodian outfit, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a little, mm, probably shouldn't have done that. Probably should have done a little bit more research and like, mm, yeah, it kind of upholds white supremacy, but it's not the same. Yeah. And there's like a very, it's a weird difference. It's almost hard for me to even it articulate the difference. Because like a part of me looks at the history of, um, culture exchange between a black and Asian culture, like starting from the sixties, like from Bruce Lee movies, right? And how, like for instance, hip hop has been deeply influenced by by kung fu movies and like and that whole thing. And a part of me is like, it's been a gift, really, to black really culture. Cool. Yeah. you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. impoverished urban. I, hate, I feel like only white people say urban, but uh-huh. impoverished like urban black kids felt empowered by the idea of like being in control of their body through kung fu yeah like my mom once said to me like you know why we like bruce lee because he showed everybody that asians can be strong mm-hmm. and i was like oh okay yeah I, like that with my that was my mom's experience and like that's the experience of a lot of poc from that time and i say poc because i i mean like asians and black people mm-hmm. like saw this person that was non-white on the screen mm-hmm. being kicking strong. Chuck Norris's ass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and were inspired by that. Uh, um, I think POCs often gift each other with culture. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like there are a lot of Asian kids that really have an appreciation for hip-hop culture and, like, really dress... Uh, in honor of hip hop I feel different about an Asian mm-hmm. kid listening to rap music and dressed in like sneakers with a backwards hat I feel different about an Asian uh-huh. person executing that than I do a white boy from Montgomery County yeah I totally I mean there have been all these recent kind of think pieces about whether Aquafina is appropriating black culture and yeah, I feel weird about that I'm, about which part about Aquafina appropriating black culture because I kind of feel like she does. Uh Because the way she does it upholds white supremacy. That is interesting. And the way that you feel like Lizzo is kind of upholding that. Tell me more about that. Yeah. I feel like this idea, like if I talked like Aquafina did, Uh if I, even when I came in here and I heard my voice, I was like, ooh, I've been like not having a code switch all weekend. I've been around a lot of black people all week. So you can, I'm, I'm not talking like I usually do. Um, and I felt weird about that. Anyways, if I talked or dressed the way Aquafina did or kind of referenced the things that she did, I wouldn't be viewed as in the same way that she is. And it feels salty that she has access to this like full black womanhood or this performance of black womanhood. Right. Um, and her humanity is still viewed or her innocence will still be viewed. Whereas if I talked like her or dressed like her, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have access to the same places. So you said you feel different about like an Asian kid. It feels less sinister. Uh-huh. If I see like an Asian kid in South Philly listening to hip hop with a backwards hat, right. like it's kind of just like that's interesting. And then it's also interesting how anti-blackness is so per- pervasive in immigrant communities. So right. sometimes it will give me a little bit of pause. Like if I walked into your pop store, would y'all follow me? Like I wonder that sometimes when mm-hmm. I see that like mm. consumption of black culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I still am just kind of like I understand that white supremacy uh gives immigrant communities access so you f- uphold anti-blackness to get access to right a good life in america so like you know whatever like i can let this hip-hop culture uh-huh. slide i can let your little bit of anti-blackness slide because i understand that it all comes from white supremacy mm-hmm. right like white mm-hmm. people are still at the uh the root of that yep. that's like that's the real white supremacy is the real enemy so yeah, this yeah. is kind of annoying uh-huh. but i can let it slide but cool. you have but you have a shared oppressor yes in that 
but and also I can just let the consumption of hip hop culture like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be quite as irritated as uh-huh. Zach. But you're still gonna be irritated a little bit. And that's really interesting because a lot of a lot of Asians adopt blackness. elements of hip- blackness, elements of blackness or black culture or hip hop culture as a kind of protest against whiteness mm-hmm. because a lot of the time black, white, white or black and yeah. like these kids are like i guess i'm not white so like, let's be black let's be black mm-hmm. yeah it can get weird though because of yeah. anti-blackness mm-hmm. in uh non-black poc communities mm-hmm. that can get a little bit weird a little bit weird but that's not the point that i was making it just feels different yeah. coming from white people when white people consume things right I mean, similarly, like, in 2016 at the BET Awards... Yeah. Like, there was this whole... Where there was all this weird appropriation of different Asian sort of things. Mm -hmm. Also, shout out to the High Holy Holiday of the BET Awards every June. (laughs) Black people across the country watch the BET Awards on that day. And, uh, you know, thank you to the BET gods. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Part of that felt kind of strange... Because they were like leaning into Orientalist tropes, mm-hmm. but obvious. But when black people do it, it's otherizing, but not, but not in the same way as when white people do mm-hmm. it. You know, maybe I it, think it, it's I, that shared oppressor thing. I, I think because black people can be real prejudiced towards Asian people, and yeah, Asian and people can versa, be real definitely. prejudiced yeah. to black like, people, you, yeah, and we feel that, mm-hmm. and there's like this tension mm-hmm. because of that sometimes, but still. Mm-hmm. When a white person does it, it feels extra wild. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I I think what I what I kind of w- hope or wish would be that this that the cultural exchange can feel a little more authentic and appreciative. And yeah, like Koreans are Korean culture is everywhere now. The if you look at the rise of rap in Korean culture, it's actually really interesting the way it was like really countercultural and has become like this global phenomenon. Yeah. Um the way hip hop like took root in Korea. But I wish that that would translate into black solidarity. Mm-hmm. You know? I see the exchange there. I think we're both feeling kind of the somewhat problematic aspects that that are hard to navigate in this appropriation slash exchange. Right. right. Um, when white supremacy is still shining through it turns from appreciation mm-hmm. to appropriation between uh, minority cultures when white supremacy shines through, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's the difference that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like right. you said, it, the BET Awards performance started leaning into Orientalist mm-hmm. tropes, and those tropes are rooted in white supremacy. Right, yeah. When that starts shining through, it's like, uh-oh, right. this went into appropriation. Yeah, um, and it's something that you notice as a person of color within seconds. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, uh-huh. this is weird having this conversation together right now because right. I've never had to really dissect it. Mm-hmm. But you feel it more than you can put language to it in a few yeah. seconds. Yeah, and here's my reaction. Like, when we're talking about Aquafina, like, my automatic reaction is to defend Aquafina because I want people to understand that Aquafina is not white. Mm-hmm. You know, I want them to understand that like an Asian person adopting elements of blackness and black culture is like the, there is a gray area there mm-hmm. and it, it, it is potentially problematic. But Asians are not white people. Right. And, mm-hmm. and which is like the, the thing that I feel like Asians are always pushing against. Mm-hmm. Like we're not white, white minus. Um, we're not white minus. That's an interesting way of putting it. Okay. Yeah. So, um. Sorry for excluding you, Chris. I, Beth and I are hashing out Asian versus black culture. I mean, like, where, where would I get in here and not be ridiculous? <laughs> yeah, we also didn't plan on this discussion of no. Asian yeah. and black exchanges, but there are so many it, exchanges between Asian and black culture. So, I never and, really thought about that before. And yeah. it's, it is an important exploration. Mm-hmm. It's definitely worth a listen. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing. I mean, Beth, you just said that it's like you we we are instantly attuned to the power dynamics when we see this stuff going on. Yeah. You know, Chris, you had to learn this stuff. Yeah, we were we, we were talking in um in two just about like without relationships um with with people outside my race, um I don't know if I I don't think I would see anything wrong in what Chu was presenting. 
Really? It, like... Or you wouldn't see the, like, nuance of it? No, I wouldn't see it. I mean, like, I wouldn't know because I wouldn't I wouldn't take the time to, to, to look it up. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know that the two owners are white. Um, I, I don't think I would notice that, like, the wait staff, the chefs, the host... All white. As soon as we walked in, well, as soon as I walked in, I was late and I met up. I saw Chris and Andrew at the bar. I was like, "Are there how many Asian people are in here? And mm-hmm. how many Asian people work here?" Yeah, like that was my right, first question. Right. I'm not. I'm not looking around to like take that census of like who are the patrons of this place. Mm-hmm. Where is this place located? Like none of those. None of those things are important to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Normally, like I've, I've actually like, it's, it's taken me time to learn that, mm-hmm. like to, to like have a, have like, ha- have a reframe, like, I, like whiteness is so dominant that it just seems okay mm-hmm. to like run an Asian themed place, theme, that's such a weird word, but like run an, run, run an Asian I mean, it noodle is bar. It is Asian, Asian themed, themed which place. is like, which is the weird thing about it. Yeah. It's a costume. Without any It Asian is a costume in there. Um, and it's funny. I noticed right away. It to me, if even if I didn't do research before walking in there, I would have known that it wasn't Asian owned because there were no Asian people working. Because mm-hmm. like families own shit. Yeah. Like they they come here. They have to. Everybody has to work to survive, and they're in the business together. So well, I would have been like, oh, white people must own this because well, ain't no other I, Asian folks say. working here. I will here. say, like, if I ever walked into a restaurant. That like looked like my grandma's house. Yeah. Like had all the same silverware. Mm-hmm. Like like the food was like what she would cook, which I mean my grandma didn't cook, so this is a stretch. But like if I went into a place like that, I I would like I'd be like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> like, yeah. you took all my grandma's shit. Like, you didn't talk to me. Mm, you didn't yeah. talk to my family. Yeah. Like, none of us got none of us got to have any say in what right. you did here. Like, and that's I, what appropriation is. That's like, what you ain't even asked me. Right. Yeah. And imagine if your family had opened up the same restaurant a few years ago and it, it, and it didn't exactly. work out. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Right. Or right now, exactly. people won't step in it because they're afraid right. you're going right. to give them coronavirus. Right. Yeah. Right. So, like... Yeah, I have to like I have to like move into a place of imagination and uh-huh. that is that is the that's also the abnormal part of white supremacy is like I'm not actually challenged to do that by my whiteness. Yeah. It's it's only if I want to have the um understanding and relationships. They're not necessary for my survival. Mm-hmm. And I, I I think this is like for me the overlap between like following jesus which like like makes us think more about the oppressed right world Mm -hmm. right talk let's talk about that like what does this have to do yeah as a jesus podcast what does this have to do with jesus Mm -hmm. in the in the overarching story of jesus where where god actually becomes man in the story of humanity is important like it's not the high point in the history of the jewish people it's it's when they are oppressed and enslaved yeah and not even just in the new testament but yeah. looking at the entire scripture yeah. like whose side is god on mm-hmm. he's yes. always on the side of the oppressed so when we're talking about cultural appropriation we're talking about People who are oppressed. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about being robbed, being yeah, robbed by the dominant that. culture, right? Uh, and I, whose side is God on in that quest, in that experience? Yeah, I, He's on the side of the people who are robbed. I mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. So, absolutely. That feels like what God has to do with cultural appropriation, <laughs> right? Um, so the last thing we like to do is talk about what we're into this week. Bethany, you want to kick us off? Yes. Um, so I'm very into Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, um, which really indicts the church um, on its history of racism in America um, and really details at the end how white Christians can work to be more anti-racist. Um, but I still encourage everybody that is a Christian um, and is really working to be more anti-racist and to confess to the sin of white supremacy, especially during this Lent season where we're really facing our sin and our darkness. I really um, 
encourage you to read Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise. I also want to say, since I'm talking about Lent, that the second thing that I'm very into right now is looking at candy because I gave candy up for Lent. <laughs> okay. So I have this thing where I go into grocery stores and I just be eyeing candy up <laughs> like, ooh, them, them Skittles is looking good. I see you, Skittles. So that's something that I'm going through right now, too. <laughs> okay. awesome. I'm catcalling Skittles. <laughs> How you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Chris. The thing that I've been thinking about coming into this conversation is um, some of the... Some of the entry for me into thinking about um, whiteness and um, Christianity came from a, a thing I did 20 years ago, which is still a, a program that's running called Mission Year. Um, so this is kind of a plug for that. This is like Mission Year really gave me an opportunity to like get out of a white context mm-hmm. um, and and live out Christian ideals, like and and really just like gave me a year to focus on. Being in relationship with my neighbors, mm-hmm. like, it was actually a pretty simple idea. But when you like, when you like, move into a different neighborhood and you don't know what's going on necessarily, like it puts you in the vulnerable place to um, to really rely on on the people around you. And I, I think that was a pretty pivotal pivotal thing in my life so i would i would say like if these are things you're thinking about in between the ages of 18 and 30 you should check out mission year cool um and the thing i'm into and i have to bring this up because we were just at a inauthentic asian restaurant but i'm going to recommend uh vientane bistro on kensington ave it is a great lao restaurant um oh i loved what you said earlier bethany about how like you, you went in and you looked for how many Asian people there because they're run by families. Like, mm-hmm. one of the best dining experiences that I had was when, like, this lady was the our cook and waitress and her kid was coloring in the corner. Yes. <laughs> like, I is, love that. I know. that. Like, that's that's when you know an Asian restaurant is good, when there's, like, a random kid somewhere mm-hmm. coloring in the corner waiting, like, with their mom who is working in the restaurant. Yep. A great restaurant, Lao food. It's really good. Highly recommend. So, special thanks to Joe Mahoney, our technical director, and also to Luke Bartolomeo, our communications manager. Jared Selby does our theme song. Yes, and as I end every episode lately, please write in to us and let us know who you are um, that's listening to us. Mountain View, View, California, I'm not going to keep on talking to you. You're going to write in to us one of these days. And Arlington, Virginia, I see you too. So you better get get to write in. And let us know that you're listening to us because working out our faith and our anti-racism in our Jesus walks isn't easy. And we all need to be working as a community um, to talk this stuff out with each other. So thanks for listening. But get to write in at circlemobilizing at gmail.com. So with that being said, stay black, Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm.